Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Paul Kingsbury, co-director of Outreach for the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is day two of our special edition of the podcast. Uh, here we are for the 32nd National Symposium for the Surface Navy Association uh, in Hyatt Regency, Crystal City. Today with me is four Smash Chiefs, James Osborne and Kevin Goodrich for Pacific Fleet and uh, Atlantic Fleet, uh, respectively. So good morning, gentlemen. How are things going? Good morning, Paul. Great. Good morning, How Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So thanks for taking time to come join us uh, this morning. I think this perspective is definitely important. Um, yesterday was a busy day. First day kickoff. You know, we had the chance to go to the enlisted roundtable together, but lots of uh, lots of talks, lots of uh, messages that came out. So, Kevin, what were what were some of your key takeaways from day one? So you were right, Paul. Day one was absolutely packed with uh, all kinds of great stuff. We had the uh, uh, for James and I, we kicked off with the enlisted roundtable uh, luncheon. So there was uh, Mick Pond came up, a fleet mass chief, uh, Kingsbury. I'm sorry, Fleet Mass Chief Ora. I'm looking at you, thinking about him. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. I've got a little uh, a little stuck in the past going. Yeah, uh, came up and and then uh, various other Mass Chiefs were present as well. But it was just a great opportunity to sort of hear what's on the minds of of folks, uh, the enlisted folks that were in the room. Unfortunately, uh, always seems to not be enough. Uh, you don't get the perspective that you like to have. You know, it was good to hear and be able to talk about the things that we're thinking about. And then to move right from that and go right into the marathon session with uh, Vice Admiral Brown, followed up by Admiral Gilday, that was that was just fantastic for me. So, um, you know, it's it's energizing. It's exciting because James and I hear things there that we've we've helped them with these speeches. We've heard all this messaging, but there's still little nuggets in there we pick up that come out in the broader audience. And the questioning uh, really teases out some nuances that we don't get. Uh, when we're just sitting around kind of talking about what we're going to say. All right. James, how about you? Good morning, Paul. Kevin, my distinguished colleague, friend, mentor. Hey, uh, so I kind of the same. You know, uh, the Enlisted Roundtable uh, is the only one event that we have to, is the only one event that we have that is discussion with enlisted for enlisted. Uh, what we try to do with that one is uh, get that broader populace to come show and hang out with this, but it doesn't seem that way. Uh, a little premature, we want to talk with SNA Direct on uh, some issues we're trying to look at and, and recommendations. Um, great conversation that we did have. This year was something different that we hadn't done in the past few years is having the Coast Guard and a senior member of the Coast Guard enlisted uh, with us in that panel, uh, and he brought a good little entourage as well. So uh, rolling into the afternoon, like Kevin spoke, uh, we worked on that speech for several months with uh, with my boss, Admiral Brown, and uh, to see uh, CNO follow behind him with some of the same messaging is very clear. We are aligned. Uh, Surface Forces is in great hands, and uh, we're looking forward definitely to that future. Uh so yesterday we uh, we had Admiral Brown on the Proceedings podcast. Um, he talked about several things, you know, build up the 355 sh ship Navy from this perspective. There was a talking about future force and those kind of things. Um, he talked about witty and a lot of things going on, on the officer side, investment and officer training develop and the successes he's seeing there. Uh, so that was a good perspective. But he did make the point to say, you know, he's worried about readiness today, right? So. Obviously, we came off the CRSR. Bill Hamblett, our editor-in-chief, uh, was on the podcast yesterday, too. Bill's been here the last few years. He noticed a positive tone change here at, at Surface Navy Association Symposium this year, just like, hey, the conference is coming back. It's a more positive feel. We're past the, you know, the kind of, oh, man, things are bad. 
So from your perspective, I hear a lot, you know, and I've written an article or two recently about, you know, I'm always focusing on what are we doing on the enlisted side, right? Hey, what's the chief's mess doing to, to prepare and focus on kind of what that, that, that battle looks like at the high end fight in the future. So the officer side, got it, we're moving. So what do you guys see in, you know, outcomes from the CRSR um, from the enlisted side that we're trying to improve? What's going good? What needs to keep uh, being improved? And what are you guys uh, focusing on? Well, that's a handful. Uh, I, I share in the assessment that this was a much more positive event. Um, the, the themes were more positive. It, and, uh, and frankly, you know, confidence is a great word to use as well. Um, I, I'm excited about where we are in surface warfare. And I'm excited about the changes that have come down from the SR and the CR. Uh, much like the Bilal report uh, a few years ago, sometimes we, we need an outside look or a hard look at some of the things that, that we've kind of grown accustomed to or accepted over a period of time. You know, we've spoken a lot about normalized deviance and the impact that that could have on, on uh, just day-to-day operations. And, and when you operate in the environments that we've been operating in, um, I think it was mentioned in one of the speeches yesterday, it's kind of all swimming in my head still because there's just so much information, um, which I can't wait to go and review all the speeches again because I'll post them. Um, and, uh, and that's a, a great opportunity for anybody that wasn't able to come up and listen to them. They can hear them there uh, at the SNA website. But we're, we're still covering the same amount of turf we've been covering as a Navy, um, and we're still doing the same amount of deployment that we ever did, and we're doing it with about half as many ships. Now, we know that, uh, but, but kind of the second part of that is is where the CRs, uh, the continuing resolutions that we had for the past couple decades before we got a two-year budget a couple of years ago, and then we just got this budget this year, um, the effect that those have on on the maintenance of the ships. Now, I, I know you didn't ask me a maintenance question, but I'm, I'm leading into that. So, you know, when you can't maintain the ships at the level of readiness that you want to maintain the ships at, it's very hard to... to explain that to the people that are supposed to be maintaining the ships that they are to get excited about this thing that's broken because that's a really big deal and we need it fixed but this other thing over here they don't need to get excited about because we understand that we just don't have the money to fix that just yet and and that ties back into the normalization of deviance so we've we've had about a decade of that and we've got a whole chief's mess full of people that have that have come up into the chief's mess through that environment and and that concerns me probably more than anything is is first to to instill in them that that's not normal despite that that's what they've been seeing their entire time Uh, and secondly it is to instill the sense of urgency that's required to get back up to speed and to keep pace with our pacing threat the national dialogue on uh, our pacing threat uh, chinese has is just starting to kind of get it out of the mainstream um, and until I, I think that it's more difficult even inside the Navy with the absence of a national dialogue on the subject to really kind of get people um, in a lather about just how important this is. Uh, Admiral Brown touched on it yesterday. There was even a picture of uh, our peer competitor uh, operating at sea and the importance of, of our maintaining the sea control. Uh, and not ceding that space to our peer competitor. And, and to get the average chief on the deck plates to translate that urgency and that requirement uh, to his or her everyday actions uh, on the deck plates and interactions with sailors is really difficult. And and that's kind of the stuff that concerns me the most. Okay. Um, so yesterday, you know, this came up in the Alyssa Roundtable. Um, you guys had talked about 
um, changes to the search for readiness manual and training manual. Um, so James, what what would you want uh, your average fleet sailor, your chief's mess to know about, hey, what changes are in their best interest um, or things that uh, fleet feedback that has come, you know, because uh, I used to hear as a fleet mass chief, hey, redundancy and certifications, you know, there was some fleet pressure, right? You'd have one team come in, right? And then immediately a few weeks later, another team, and then you'd have that on top of an inserb. Um, have these changes done a great job or have they done a job to kind of address some of those? Sure, Paul. So uh, a, a quick one back to the CRSRR. So uh, Admiral Brown did state it yesterday. Uh, when we talk uh, next month, we when he talks next month to Congress, we're going to say we, we've completed all in the surface force uh, out of all the uh, objectives we had to, to look after. And Good. some of those specifically uh, out of the 111, 113, uh, as he said, only about 40, 48 were specific towards surface forces. Uh, one thing that we, we look at from the surf pack side was the half-life of scared is something that Amber Brown has been really pushing with, you know, we get into this mindset from 2017, the CR and SRR, and some of those bad behaviors that we've uh, seen, uh, you get back into that normal deviance after so long. So he published uh, a message, said, hey, we're half-life of scared. Remember, this is what got us here. Uh, continue to remind ourselves of that. Going into the Surface Force Readiness and Training Manual, which was talked about yesterday, and uh, the senior chief was, hey, we got this new thing, and you know, it's been out for a little bit. The new Surface Force Readiness Training Manual was out because we were listening. Yep. So uh, one of the main topics and one of the main things that we pushed forward uh, when uh, both Kevin and I and our bosses got into these jobs were, what is the force saying? What do we need to do better? And that clearly was a success in not requiring a ship to continue to certify through all the all the steps through that uh, surface force readiness training or during the training process in the basic phase. So for a, a ship to certify early, which we have numerous ships that have done that now, and the success and the benefits have completely outweighed what we have done in the past, giving that CO his, his time back. Uh, and as you mentioned, without having two, three, four training teams on at the same time, trying to get their same pound of flesh out of that crew and running them through the night. So I think it is absolutely a success and, uh, and, and because we have listened to the sailor. So from that, I would say sailors keep telling us and we'll keep listening and change how we can. All right. Yeah. And that speaks to, uh, I mean, something as simple. We talked about that confidence, right? So this you know, after a while, how you how you do that, you can you know you may be, feel confident. Hey, we got this down, but then someone comes in again and again, right? That can just erode that out. But if you can build a team, demonstrate success, certify early, you can't tell me that propels you to a higher level, right? That kind of I think that inculcates that culture of excellence, um, and it gets. I mean, we kind of joked about it yesterday, but something as simple, frankly, as the SWO jacket, right? There's a bit of swagger to that, right? There's kind of a there's a feel to being a warfighter, right? There's there's that sense of uh, I want in the cheese mess, like yeah, we want to prepare. So I think these messages are important to connect them to the. I higher think if anybody can identify with that feeling of identity and how important it is, it should be the cheese mess. Yes, yeah. you know, and you and you mentioned what should we, what something we want to you know get across to that cheese mess, and uh, in, in preparing for that high end fight and the fight for t today. You know, as you go through some of the history, it was prepare the fight for tomorrow, prepare the fight for next week. We're in now speaking, prepare the fight for today. Um, and, and when I get inside the Chiefs Mess and I talk with those uh, commanding officers, I, I remind them that as a Chiefs Mess as a whole, we typically can get anything accomplished. 
pretty much move a mountain. However, individually, how are we proficient in our technical acumen? Are we doing what we're supposed to do as that chief petty officer in rate with our sailors? Because as it was spoken yesterday, when we go into that fight, it's going to have what we have. And we have to be able to be prepared and fight with that. Got it. So it's uh, kind of uh, ironic. I was just thinking about it. So one force mass chief represents, right, a former ET, represents that kind of detect to engage community you're the former damage control man right so both of those how do you feel about those about that effectiveness right now like so um, i wrote right kind of that article should have come out a year ago how do you feel about the systems and the processes that are shaping the technical competence and the focus and the capability of the chief's mess and then in turn that broader enlisted force now that's a conversation that that we could have for the next four hours all right i need and, i need uh, the five minute version. yeah and not get to the bottom <laughs> of it so um, you know, very interesting. And in, in, in full disclosure, my views have been largely shaped by you, uh, both at your time at Fleet Forces and, and, you know, your prolific writing, which is available, your digital footprints all over the place. Uh, but, but I think that, that there are many people that share that same viewpoint. That, um, and, and it's even touched on as far back as Belial, if you, if you go back and, and read those reports. Uh, I was listening to uh, one of the podcasts that was uh, sent to me recently in advance of the SNA from USNI, and and they talked about the difference between effectiveness uh, focused Navy uh, post Cold or right around the Cold War time to the post Cold War efficiency kind of focused Navy, and and I don't want that to come back or come across as sounding pejorative in any way. I think that it's natural. Um, as Admiral Brown said yesterday, that if you were here for the Cold War and when, when the Soviet Union finally collapsed, by virtue of simply waking up the next morning, uh, you were immediately the most dominant naval force in the world. Uh, so that's an inherited greatness. And what have we done with that inherited greatness? Um, I, I think when you, you go into that, all of a sudden you have to start making some resourcing decisions that make a lot of sense. You have to start to think it, it costs a lot of money to keep that top level of readiness um, that you would need to fight something like the Cold War or be in great power competition again with our new peer competitors, um, it, it takes a lot to do that. So you have to sort of move, move into efficiency mode. And I, I think, you know, one of the greatest strengths of the Navy is that we've got so many different uh, gears in the transmission of making a Navy. Um, sometimes they don't appear meshed and they kind of go, go off on their own directions. And I think as we, we progressed through those years, um, we saw reductions in training. We saw reductions uh, to IMA maintenance facilities. Um, Belial teases all this out really well. We've made those investments to bring all that back, uh, but we still have that cadre of senior enlisted folks now that that did not benefit from the same training that James and I did, um, where we had much longer A schools, uh, where there was a SEMA that you could go to to learn your craft in between your C-duty commands. Um, there was a, a really big push for self-sufficiency because you were operating at the tip of the spear uh, and out a lot away from your supply chain and the ability to hit tech tech reps. Uh, then you layer in um, all the reductions in those areas that we took, uh, both in training and in uh, closing the IMAs and all those things. The availability of a tech rep by computer or telephone 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and that naturally sort of moves the entire force into um, you know, more of a pick up the phone and call for help kind of kind of force. Uh, I think all that's natural, and it's it's exactly what we 
uh, should have expected if we didn't, but it's exactly what we what we paid for and what we designed, and that's what we have. So, so if that's natural, the next natural move is to bring it all back, and and I think here's the part that I'm I'm most excited about: uh, the ready, relevant learning um, initiatives that are that are moving on. They're very um, the TICOMs are really kind of running that. You mentioned earlier that James is a former DC man and I'm a former ET. Um, as irony would have it, um, Surf Land is responsible for all the SWAS schools, so the quartermaster and all the engineering schools, and then uh, Surf Pack is taking the lead for all of the uh, electronics type schools, so all the combat system schools. But I think that that works well because we we communicate well uh, and we're aligned and we can share information, uh, and it teaches us both a little bit about what we didn't know. But those investments, with the TICOM driving them, uh, where we have the ability to shape training in a way that we hadn't ever shaped. So um, I, I'm excited about that. We've got to get that right. And even Admiral Grady has said on multiple occasions, we cannot afford to get this wrong. Yep. I mean, we have to get this right. Absolutely. Uh, and then we've made the investments back into SIMAs, uh, although they're Marmex now, but mm-hmm. SIMA by, you know, by the same name. Uh, so I'm excited about that. And I think we've made we've made the right moves. We just need to keep them moving. I'm glad you brought up the ready, relevant learning because, I mean, obviously that was a big muscle movement that was happening when uh, I was at Fleet Forces. And one of the things that appealed to me was that it was going to give the TICOMs more ownership and control over the school content and things like that. So. So a lot of times we think about, hey, you know, we're in the command mass chief program, we're fleet and force mass chiefs, and we make stuff happen. But um, what's your interaction with some 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 of the rating mass chiefs that are out there? Or you know, what I mean that you know, who's that senior DC man or who's that senior ET out there, and what are they doing to help solve these problems? Kind of in line how Kevin was speaking earlier. Uh, with that whole tech crap and phone a friend to fix my equipment kind of thing. I, I use a different verb when I, or adjective, if you will, when I'm talking to the chief's mess. That concerns me. It concerns me that we have chief petty officers that have grown up in the environment that Kevin talked about, and it's very convenient. It's very easy for them to uh, pick the phone up and ask for someone else to help fix their equipment. Uh, something uh, we both push very heavily in our chief's mess uh, on the surface force side is, is being able to do just that. Uh, you are that chief petty officer. You need to be that subject matter expert, and you need to roll your sleeves up and actually get after that tech manual and, and look at fixing your own equipment first because you're not going to be having that ability to, to phone the friend when the high-end fight is taking place. And uh, So I'll jump in. So I, uh, I, I was on a podcast uh, last week, I think it was, and I got asked that. It's like, hey, what does this mean preparing? So I, I don't think it – You know, I, if I could go back and do it again, and I'm going to make the point now, is it's not just once – it started right it's to have a ship that's ready to go and fight right because i'm telling you envision what it looks like because once the salvos fire off yeah, it's too late it's too yeah. late right i, I so. think i think the tagline is uh and it's it's apt it's uh combat ready ships and battle mining crews yes um and it's going to be i think uh, and we'll talk a little bit about neptune's inferno later but you know there's a pattern right he who fires first and you know kind of inflicts damage Correct. is at the advantage and uh in with a modern, you know, with modern systems and weapons, it's going to be quick, and you got to make sure that ship is prepared when that when that uh, TAO says fire. That system's got to go. Um, right, and we talked earlier about the 355 ship, uh, and and leadership is saying that's that's great. We want to get there, but we want to have the ships that we have commissioned now to be battle minded and ready to get into the fight in the now and be trained properly. Uh, so looking to that future is a little difficult when we want to make sure we have it right now. Yep. Uh, you mentioned about those uh, rated Master Chiefs. Uh, something that has taken place just in the last couple of years, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the folks when I speak uh, on the ships, they, they're still not aware that the enlisted career path is a direct link 
to that advancement process, and we rely heavily on those rated Master Chiefs to make sure we get that right. So the enlisted career path is 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 absolutely uh, where we're pushing those rated mass chiefs to get after their rating, saying this is what you should be doing to advance into that rate. Um, so build a little more on that enlisted career path because that might be for some of our listeners not familiar with it. Um, what why is that so important? What does that do? How does that help? Okay, so in the past, what you would have heard typically was the uh, Navy. Uh, the latter, sort of the learning uh, and developmental learning and developmental roadmap, yep. which was under the NKO. Uh, uh, again, last couple of years, uh, CNP has taken into account, and we've created the enlisted career path. The enlisted career path is E1 to E9 in all ratings, to include the uh, command senior chief, command master chief, to include the command senior chief, command master chief rating. Um, and from that, uh, there, there's terms that's very clear: best and fully qualified. So you could have the qualification, the certification, but how, would, how did you use it? Yep. Were, were you the go-to watchstander in that field? So there's still deviance in there to say this is why you should be advanced versus someone saying, well, I did that. Why didn't I get advanced? So every rating has it, uh, and the enlisted career, the community managers uh, own that process. Every year they update it, and, uh, and it's ready for the, the upcoming selection board process. Okay. So it's one of three documents that's only provided. Back in the day when you were still around and when we were younger and, and rated mass chiefs, I would stand up in front of that panel and say, based off of my experiences, this is what you should do to advance. We've taken that out of the process, the objectivity, the subjectivity. If it's not in writing, you can't advance to it. Gotcha. So uh, to follow up more on the, and you know, what are the, what's the role here in, in RRL for the enlisted uh, master chief in rate. It's, it's pretty fascinating. So there's there's always been a lot of impact that the enlisted rating uh, leads have had. So there's the AERR process. I just sent an email out asking for more AERR. And that stands for at advancement exam readiness review, I think, yeah, or yeah. words that effect. But basically the the exam review and writing process. Okay. And and that's that's very. I mean, it's driven almost 100% by the enlisted folks that, that uh, lead those communities. Uh, but the RRL process, right around the learning, is really brought into play, uh, I would say, the average sailor's ability to affect curriculum development uh, for the entire uh, RRL block learning process. So every rating has been either has been through or is scheduled to go through uh, a review to determine how best to deliver, you know, fir first of all, what do we need to deliver? Second of all, when is it best to deliver that? And then, uh, you know, thirdly, what method should we deliver it by? And this is 100% run by the rated master chiefs and uh, other senior enlisted in those ratings. So as those processes move around the schoolhouses, around the fleet concentration areas, uh, and, and we send, James and I send emails out inviting people to go to those, I, I, I mean, you got to go, right? Yep. So, so I think it's really, really important that you get involved uh, because you are going to be the recipient of what that process produces, yep. and uh, you need to influence it. And we often hear, right, um, the content of the advancement exams, making sure that's you know relevant yep. a lot. I yeah, don't absolutely. think you'll ever get that completely perfect, but uh, yep. I mean, if you ask me, I'm like, you know, like I mentioned in my article, like no way should we ever get rid of testing as far as I'm concerned, but you got to make sure it, that the testing is accurate and it's something that sailors are like, oh yeah, I'm actually being tested on relevant skills. Yeah, you know, you think about, I, I wouldn't want to go, you know, if I needed to go see a brain surgeon because I wasn't <laughs> in, a, in a bad way, I, I wouldn't want the guy who never, or, or Gallo never passed her brain surgeon yep. test. Um, yep. 
Absolutely. So, yeah. Hey, uh, so we talked about, you know, you guys get out and about, you know, huge swaths of influence, huge targets that you're talking to. The cheese mess is one big piece, you know, um, you know, symposiums like this. What do you do? What's your message? How do you engage the wardroom? Right. So do you get to go to command leadership school? Do you go to SWAS? What's your message to the wardroom? Right. Because, you know, all this, you know, the enlisted force has a role in providing a material and operationally ready ship. And from my perspective, the wardroom better be able to fight it. And I'm interested Amen. in how well they can do that. Right. So do you do are those conversations there? When do you get the, uh, the opportunity to talk to the wardroom? Yeah. So not to sound crass, Paul, but uh, one of the one of the things I I. I'm pretty direct when I do my chief's engagements, um, and, and I expect a lot out of them because, frankly, they're capable of a lot. Uh, you know, that our process to make a chief is fantastic, and, and I expect a lot out of them. Uh, so I'll stand in the mess, and I'll tell them, your job is to provide a crew that is trained to operate this warship, who can maintain this warship, and who can control damage when the time comes. And that's your job end-to-end. And if you're doing that to the best of your ability, and it's effective, we're, we are going to be unstoppable. And then oftentimes I get to march right out of the chief's mess and I go right up to the wardroom for my engagement with the JOs. And, and I say, this is what I just told the chiefs. And it's met with a, a, a rousing applause a lot of times because, you know, they live in the readiness world as well. And then I, I quickly dovetail that with, and it's your job to, to learn how to fight this damn thing. <laughs> and if you're not doing that, none of that other stuff is going to matter. No. You know, and, and look at, frankly, how many of you there are. And, you know, what are your self-study programs and who's putting the rigor into that? Like, how are you driving rigor into that process? Institutionally, we've got that rigor installed and the, and the CR and SR certainly helped us uh, refocus it. Uh, but but this is this is a journey of self-discovery as much as it is anything else. It's each individual warfighter's responsibility to be the best they can be at the things that they're responsible to do. And if they're not if they're not driving toward that, well, frankly, all of our lives depend on that. Like, that's what that's what we need. I couldn't back that up any any better there because Kevin is the more prolific uh, speaker than I am. Uh, I, when I get in, in engagements with uh, with the, the, the wardroom, similar conversation. Uh, I'm a little more blunt force trauma uh, when it comes to that's to your DC man. That's my DC man yeah. coming out. Absolutely, see hole, plug it. Exactly. Uh, but you know uh, what? What I try to remind them too is uh, is the roles of the division officer to their crews. Uh, you know, they've got to be able to fight the ship. They, they've got their role responsibility that they've got to continue. Their career path is always in the in the back of their mind. What they need to get to the next step. Uh, I just try to remind them that you need to focus on the now and take care of your role and responsibility on board the ship and to your crew because uh, we got to get away from the day of the old where the chief petty officer gave them the Heisman and said, hey, you go get your qualifications, I'll take care of everything else. They need to be embedded in that process. So that's kind of where I push the, the ward room. Okay. Um, so let's look. Uh, so we did talk, you know, current readiness. Looking out a bit, you know, there's a lot of new things we read about, people are writing about, right? Unmanned, you know, uh, hey, what's the mix of manned and unmanned? Uh, there's new energy-directed weapon systems or, you know, there's a whole you know, Zumwalt class. There's some cool stuff on the horizon. Lasers. Yep. Um, and without a certain degree of clarity, kind of what's your thoughts on that stuff? Where do you see, you know, do you see some kind of what would you envision, you know, or are you thinking about how the enlisted force needs to adjust to that? You know, new ratings. Yeah. Are we too early for that? Any of that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, so we're on the precipice, if, if it didn't get released last night, I guess, of the new force structure assessment. And it was all the buzz and, and the theme through all the conversations yesterday. Um, you know, what does that look like? And, you know, frankly, we're always trying to fit the most capability into the budget we have while we're asking for more capability or more budget so we can add capability. Um, so unmanned has entered that equation. Uh, but I think what was really 
caught me by surprise as well because I'm a I'm a, a tourist in this area um, as much as anybody because if you're not inside the mechanism that's kind of developing the force structure assessment you really don't know much about this stuff yet because we haven't we've just been sort of whispering around it or talking about it a little bit in, in very general terms uh, but but when the CNO said yesterday that Secretary Modley has has repeatedly stated publicly that 355 plus is kind of the number and unmanned sits on top of that number and and that really caught me uh, by surprise because I guess I just made an assumption that that unmanned was a way to kind of get to 355 um, and then they went on to explain further uh, both Admiral Brown in his speech and and Admiral Gilday in his um, that that it's really kind of too early to tell what unmanned looks like and and how it's going to be used and how it's going to work uh, but but I could I could tell you that the, from the enlisted side, the things that James and I think about and fleets, uh, ORA and Hone think about, uh, and I'm sure that uh, uh, the and e fleet mass, she's paying attention as well, yeah. is, you know, there's a tail to, to all of that stuff, right? Somebody has to maintain it. Somebody has to operate it. Who is that going to be? What is it going to look like? How are they going to be trained? Um, how do we kind of, how do we use them? Uh, so all the questions you have, we have too, and and I'm excited just to hear more. So to yep. to put it bluntly, I don't know yep. about any of that stuff, and uh, and I will tell you that we are all all waiting for the first little piece of kind of direction and information. And you have senior enlisted folks like uh, the fleet mass chiefs and the force mass chiefs that that are going to be heavily involved in this process as it's being shaped, so that we can get the enlisted representation and just. Uh, kind of give that perspective uh, based on our experience to the people that are making the decisions. Got it. Uh, changing up gears, so just a few minutes ago, Petty Officer John Miner just walked by. He was the winner of the... Surf- a little fist bump, yeah. Yes. Um, he was the winner of the Surface Navy Association's uh, basically writing award, literary award. Um, what was the title of that? I think that's what it was, the literary award. Oh, it, it was, The article, yeah. yeah every Sarah Damage Control Man. Oh, right? yeah, wow. So it was every the winner. Sailor, exactly. It was the winner of the <laughs> ding, ding, enlisted ding, ding, prize essay contest last year. So... Um, He's gotten so much feedback. He's gotten, you know, the Naval Institute's award, and then that gets validated by a separate, you know, body of the Surface Navy Association, right? There's no crossover on those. And then um, I tell people he, uh, you know, after we did the podcast with him, um, he he got hit up by what we found out to be a mass chief who said, hey, I can't. I just talked to the secretary of the Navy about your article this morning. Um, I hope he gets to read it soon. So it, it just reinforces. And then apparently... Uh, one of the ships that he wrote about, you know, they sent him a cruise book and they all had signed it because that article resonated. So it, it just reinforced me the power of writing and the power of a first. You know, we see it a lot now, second and first class uh, petty officers writing. But um, before you start writing, I tell people you got to be reading and talking, right? So what are you guys reading? What you know, what shapes your thinking? Not necessarily about current readiness and and those things, but just in general, right? What are you reading, Kevin? Yeah. So currently, right now, I've kind of. Dusted off on uh, a modern-day classic called The 100-Year Marathon by Pillsbury. Um, I had already read um, a couple of books on China, uh, and and they're, frankly, scary. Uh, and and I had heard this one referenced a, a bunch, uh, so I finally went back and picked it up. And, and I'm, I'm only in the beginning third of the book, and, and I almost have to put it down uh, because it's so shocking. Um, the, the path that Pillsbury had laid out, a long time ago, several years ago, seems to be pretty uh, predictive. Uh, you could look at that book today as a plan. It's almost like we're following that plan. And um, 
and so far in the book, that plan doesn't end well. So that's sort of what's influencing my my sense of urgency and, yeah. and my speech as I move about the fleet, uh, because I see uh, what looks like a a gathering threat, and I know that we need to to get hot to get where we need to go to counter it. Okay. So I'd like to put a pin in and say, uh, what a great article being a former damage controlman, and uh, that in that context of someone who has the furthest reach of a, uh, a damage controlman, how he could see that and, and visualize that, A, truly every every, yeah. every sailor. Yeah. yeah, an IS-1, yeah. working uh, at Stratcom, right? Correct. So, yeah. Yep, yep. Well, he did reference his, his from his, his time yes. on board ship. Um, so kudos to him and, uh, you know, uh, training must have been done well as a damage yeah. controlman during his uh, his training, so for it to resonate. Uh, currently, uh, dusted off is, as Kevin said, uh, 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 one that I've read a few times now, which is uh, Neptune's Inferno. Uh, you know, Neptune's Inferno resonates with me because of the locality and where I'm at in the Indo-Paycom and where our ships go. I also started uh, uh, looking through uh, the Learning War again. Because uh, it's uh, kind of slow to get going, but uh, you know, once you get going, it, it, it moves on smartly. But uh, yeah, so Neptune's Inferno with me resonates because as a as a, a crew desk sailor back in the day, and just you know, in our positions now uh, as Force Masters for the Surface Force, uh, it concerns. It concerns. It should be concerning. It should be alarming uh, of what we're seeing uh, with the uh, near peer competitors, which are actually you know they're right there with us. So. It's a book that I push inside the Chiefs Mess as well to remind them that uh, in that high-end fight and when the fight happens, this is what's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, Neptune's Inferno uh, was was a game changer for me. When I when I read that book, uh, it completely transformed the way I was looking at everything. Um, you know, it, it took me from the efficiency, the efficiency kind of focused Navy that I was in, um, and, and I, I was like, holy cow, I remember the effective effective focus navy that i was in we need to get back to that now um it, it's pretty graphic and i think that i think that should be required reading for every chief petty officer uh just to understand what their role is going to be if that if the missiles start coming to the side of that ship yes. and how hard it's going to be to to uh, fight for life so your general sense though is that that sense of urgency i mean so an article like petty officer minor writes to me indicates that message is penetrating right and sailors i mean we've had firemen writing articles about you know, a couple of years ago about toughness and mindset and that that helped reinforce at least focus on me to kind of start talking hey what are we doing in boot camp right so if the, yeah. f- the fleet is the yeah. customer and, right and what the stuff is boot that, camp that doing? the fleets did when you yep. were sitting and, and uh, going up to boot camp and looking at it is still there you actually helped kick off a, a, a continuing growth process for them they've re-reviewed a couple of times and, and the product that they're putting out now is is uh, almost eye-watering yeah um but, you know, we're a giant organization. And, and yes, we got to IS-1 up at STRATCOM, but I would say he was a, an extremely early adopter, um, and, and he picked it up. The, the fact is the institution um, still has a lot of ways to go. Um, so you need every portion of the institution that supports uh, to also pick up that same sense of urgency and that same sense of focus. And that's that's what our job is. That's what James and I's job are, is to influence the other parts of the Navy to help us uh, focus everybody in the right direction. And that could include selection boards, advancement policy, uh, personnel policy, anything that could make a warfighter more effective, we need to be involved with. 
um, and pushing. And, and we have the benefit of just representing the surface force. Um, I can swing for the fences on stuff that just works for us. And, and um, you know, my, my great friend, Wes Koshoffer, the uh, mpt e Fleet Master Chief, who might be the smartest guy in any room I'm in, definitely, um, just any room at all, you know, he's got to negotiate because I'm sure that, that uh, Smitty Tekorsik over at, at uh, Air Forces and Huben Phillips at Airland are doing the same thing, and they're swinging for the fences for stuff that matters to them in AV aviation. And uh, he's got to sort of to juggle all that and get it right. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to continue to push for the surface force and, uh, and get what we need and let them figure out how to balance all those requirements. Absolutely. And hopefully forums and, and venues we use, such as this podcast, help you communicate that message. Just yeah. another way to get that out and help you. So, all right. So let's uh, start to wrap it up. What's uh, what's on your radar for the next, uh, you know, where are you heading to next? Where are you, where are you guys engaging after SNA? Yeah. So, um, well, I, I go back down to Norfolk for a week um, and, you know, back into the grind. And then we're heading out to uh, James's hosting his CMC symposium. I'll let him talk more about that. But I bring um, some ISIC leaders from around Surfland uh, to help with the alignment piece. He mentioned earlier how important it was or, or how good it felt to see that the CNO and, and Admiral Brown were so well aligned. Um, James and I work very hard trying to stay aligned um, and to keep that message moving. So the opportunity to come and be with him next week is, or week after next is going to be fantastic. Piggyback off that with the uh, symposium. So, you know, when you get into a position that you, you have some influence, that was something where Kevin and I uh, were really looking forward to was moving forward in a direction of alignment, which hadn't been done in the past, bringing us to close together, bringing some of his senior leadership over to the symposium. So SurfPAC uh, every year does a senior listed uh, symposium. We missed it last year. But uh, this year, uh, again, we're bringing in uh, Mick Pond, the, the, the fleets, numbered fleets, and we're aligning the numbered fleets with, uh, with their marine counterpart as well. Uh, so we absolutely are integrating uh, in the, in the blue-green, uh, even from the leadership perspective. Uh, and we're going to get those briefs from their AORs, as, as well as uh, Kevin and I have a day where we're going to just talk uh, senior listed development inside our community and what we should be pushing their chief's mess to, to move forward with in that high-end fight. So it's a, it's a good venue. Uh, really excited about it uh, and just always try and make it better than we did the, the year before. All right. All right, Kevin, uh, James, thanks again. It was great seeing you guys and catching up. Keep up the great work. Uh, I know it sounds like you're, many times it feels like you're suiting up and crashing in that line, but every inch you gain, right, some days you'll be knocked back a bit. But keep that press on. Keep that sense of urgency on. Uh, we yeah. need that leadership and that message. Yeah. So thanks for spending some time with us today. Um, I'm, I'm going to get one more close in here before you wrap it all up. Uh, you, 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 you reminded me of something. James and I are focused on the delta between where we are and where we need to be. Um, but what often doesn't come through is our great admiration for all the stuff that's kind of below the line of the delta. Uh, and we said it yesterday in the season list of Roundtable. We have amazing sailors operating state-of-the-art equipment and the best stuff that anybody fields anywhere, bar none. We have the technological advantage still, uh, and we have the greatest sailors operating that stuff. And we are where we need to be, when we need to be there, and we can, we can apply combat power uh, to enforce the will of the nation at any moment. Um, and, and that can't be um, understated enough or overstated enough. Um, just because we tend to focus on the things that we need to improve, you got to remember we're doing a lot of great work already. We just want to build on that foundation and get to the next level. So thanks for this opportunity, Paul. 
Yes, I just would say close. Thank you, Paul, for having us. So nope. I appreciate that. Great message to finish on. And thanks again for listening. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.